From the very beginning of the nation of Israel, the Lord made it very clear that his blessing would rest upon this people and that the other nations of the earth would be blessed because of the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 tells us, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Moses was later called to the great work of leading that nation of Israel out of bondage, and out of the bondage of of Egypt. And at the burning bush in the wilderness, he heard the word of God when he said, Draw not nigh thither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Later in his own life, Moses would sum up the Lord's love for his people in some of his final words that are spoken to the nation when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 26. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. You'll find throughout these Old Testament scriptures Uh, verse after verse, where the Lord makes it clear that the blessing of the Lord would be upon the nation of Israel. But now Israel was at a bit of a crossroads. They were in the process of taking the promised land. In Numbers chapter 22, just one chapter before our text, 
In verse 1 we read, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan. So now they were moving out of uh, Egypt in their wanderings and they were taking, beginning to take the promised land. Balak, the king of Moab, knew what Israel had done to the other nations and he knew something had to be done. So in a strange turn of events, he sent for a prophet. The prophet's name was Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse Israel that Moab might prevail against them. And if that wasn't strange enough, the set of circumstances that ensued from that meeting got even more strange. Balaam gets a word from the Lord in spite of being a false prophet and tells Balak that whatever the word the Lord gives him to speak, that will he say. And then we read our passage beginning in verse 7 down through verse 10. He took up this parable and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations." Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Of the, the, the blessings that are bestowed upon Israel, this may be the blessing that comes from the strangest source. You have great men, Abraham. You have great prophets like Moses. And it doesn't surprise us then that the Lord gives these great men the reminder of the blessing upon Israel. But here, a false prophet hired by the enemy of the Lord, if ever there was a time when Israel would be cursed, it's now. But out of the mouth of this false prophet is perhaps one of the greatest reminders to God's people of how blessed they are. And so I want to consider tonight uh, in just a more of a, a topical way, the theme of the death of the righteous, the envy of the world. The death of the righteous, the envy of the world. Now, some of you may be aware uh, of the situation that our family finds ourselves in. Uh, there was some doubt as to whether I would even be here for these weeks to preach the word. My brother-in-law is in the process of dying and going to be with the Lord. He's had cancer for a number of years. And last week we got a message from my sister that she was calling in the family because she thought my brother-in-law was going to be with the Lord. And almost immediately, she had never, she had never texted anything quite like that. She was always texting about the hope of recovery, uh, pain management, but it appeared as if that was the moment or shortly thereafter that he was going to be with the Lord. And the response from the other members of my family who were in the group text was amazing to me. It reminds me of the great comfort that God's people have when facing death. Almost immediately, 
our family responded with passages of Scripture. My brother Tim said, I know it's hard, but he fought a good fight and will be in glory soon. My brother Ron said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Christ will welcome his people into the celestial city. And then my father, who's himself 80 years old, said, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. I say it was a blessing and an encouragement to my own heart to know that at that moment that our family was coming to grips with the what appeared to be the imminent passing of my brother-in-law, that the Lord put texts upon our hearts to give to my sister as an encouragement facing such a trial. The own, my own text that I left for her was the beginning of the process of preparing this message. I said, the passing of the Christian is the envy of the ungodly. We are the blessed people. Doesn't matter how much land, money, houses, cars we have. The ungodly see it. Balaam said about Israel, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. So I want to focus on a few things tonight. Uh, And as I said, it's more of a topical message, but dealing with the death of the righteous and why the death of the righteous is the envy of the world. First thing we see from this text is that death is to be faced by all men. That goes without saying. Uh, Balaam doesn't say only the righteous die or only the ungodly die. We know from the scriptures that death is to be faced by all men. We know first of all that the scripture tells us that death is the result of Adam's fall into sin. Death came in by sin. In Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17, we're told the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Literally, in the Hebrew language, in the text, it reads, dying thou shalt die. The death was immediate, death in the soul. Then the death also would be later, the death in the body. The body death is the ultimate sign that sin has been committed. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us very clearly, the wages of sin is death. We give wages as a form of payment. The payment for our sin is death. And so it's clear from the scripture, death is the result of Adam's fall into sin. And when you read in the Old Testament, especially the genealogies, where a certain person is told that they lived so many years and then they died. And another person lived so many years and then they died. We read that often, if we're reading through that passage or reading through that book as part of our reading, we kind of we skim through it as if, well, this, is, this isn't really saying anything to us. It's just going through that this person died and that person died and that person died. But put it in the context of a perfect garden where the Lord created man perfect in righteousness, in knowledge, and in holiness. 
And then the fall into sin where the Lord said, dying thou shalt die. And it's not too long after that that you read, this person lived and they died. And this person lived and that they died. You get to the end of the chapter that started in a, in a perfect garden with no death. And the end of that book, the book of Genesis, ends in Egypt in a coffin. That's the last word that you find in the book of Genesis. Death is the result of Adam's fall into sin. But the second thing we see also is that Adam's fall affected all mankind. It wasn't just Adam's fall into sin. It affected all mankind. The Shorter Catechism, question 16, asks us the question, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The answer is the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We break the law. We break the commandments of God. But that alone is not the reason why we're sinners. The scripture tells us that Adam's sin was imputed to us. It was put to our account. We are viewed in Adam in our natural state. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22 tells us very clearly, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. It doesn't say all die because of their sins and what Adam did. It specifically says, for as in Adam, all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The sin of Adam in the garden was unique in that it affected our nature. Because of the sin of our first father, we are born with a sinful disposition. We are born with a sinful nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Sin entered into the world and passed to all men because all have sinned. And so death is very clearly established in the word of God to be faced by all men. But our passage goes on. It doesn't stay with the theme of death because the text tells us, tells us that let me die the death of the righteous. It specifically focuses upon the righteous. And so while in the first point we can say that death is to be faced by all men, we go on to consider secondly tonight, only the righteous die well. Only the righteous die well. Death is is something we all must face. You've heard the expression, the only things that are guaranteed in life is death and taxes. I know people that went to prison for not paying their taxes. You cannot pay your tax. You you may face other consequences. But I never liked that saying. I'm convinced the the saying should be boiled down to there's only one thing guaranteed in life and that is death. You think of all the things that happen to all mankind. The different courses of life that they take. uh, The prosperity. The difficulties. The the struggles in the family relationship. Maybe some people's families are, 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 are fine. There's, there's no struggle. Some, maybe some other people have struggles in their families for their entire lives. Our lives 
take so many different paths and so many different courses from the the moment we're all born. But every one of those paths reconverge at the end of our lives at the door we call death. There's one thing that's guaranteed to us when we are born into this world, and that is we will die. Only the righteous, this passage tells us, die well. Let me die the death of the righteous. Here's a death that is desirable. We have to ask ourselves a couple questions when we read this verse. First of all, who are the righteous? If Balaam desired to die the death of the righteous, we must ask ourselves the question, who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? I want to die the death of the righteous. Who are the righteous? Well, we considered this several months ago when we considered the theme of the righteousness of the saints. We spent a great deal of time dealing with righteousness. And we considered then that righteous people are those who do righteousness. Righteousness, according to dictionary.com, means the quality or state of being righteousness. It's characterized by uprightness or morality or moral rightness or justifiable. Righteousness, therefore, means the state of being morally upright or morally perfect. Morally perfect. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let me die the death of the one who is morally perfect. In referring to the nation of Israel, he was hinting that they were the righteous. That they were the righteous. In, the, in, case, in our case, in the case of you and me, we are not righteous. If left to our own righteousness, this could never apply to us. We can never perfectly keep the law of God in order to merit life. The only hope of inheriting this life is being viewed as righteous in the sight of God. We can't provide, we can't perform that righteousness. We just got done saying that the wages of sin is death. We break the law of God. We break his law. The scriptures are clear that those who have trusted in Christ for salvation from sin have received an imputed righteousness or a righteous standing before God, which is based on the righteousness of the one in whom they put their trust, Jesus Christ. This is why the Jews, when the Jews rejected Christ in lieu of their own legal righteousness, in, the, in, in order to stand before God accepted based upon their own efforts and their own labors, it was so grieving to the Apostle Paul. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. This is the same group. This is the same name that is being used by Balaam so long ago. Israel. And here the Apostle Paul says the the desire that he has for this people is that they might be saved. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The efforts to please God by the keeping of the law, the efforts in trying to manufacture your own righteousness. They're ignorant. 
They're ignorant of the righteousness that God has provided. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. He goes on to say, for Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. Right? This is what the Jews were trying to accomplish. That the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith, it's a faith righteousness. The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead, again from the dead. But what saith it? This is the righteousness which is by faith. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. There's not a righteousness that is being merited by sinners. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. There's an imputed righteousness. There's a faith righteousness that is put to the account of God's people. And earlier in the chapter, we're told where that righteousness comes from. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And then to finish up that section, the apostle says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Oh, there's not a, a righteous standing that we merit before the Lord based upon what we do. The Lord views us as righteous tonight if our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called imputed righteousness. And I personally believe that that is what is intended when Balaam says this great statement concerning Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let me die the death of the one who is viewed by God as righteous in his sight. From the moment shortly after the fall until the moment just before the end of time, the message of redemption and of an imputed righteousness has gone out far and clear. We call this message that has gone out, we call it the message of the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel message, is the righteousness of faith. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, in describing the gospel, says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. Why is it? Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As we preach the gospel, as we preach the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we exhort men and women to trust his work by faith. The Lord makes it very clear. Our righteousness is put to the account of all those that believe. It's an imputed righteousness. It's a faith, it's a faith righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Some of the great passages in the word of God concerning this very, this very theme. Israel should have known. They should have known about faith righteousness. The father of Israel, Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, 
and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham's trust in the promise of what the seed would do, the Lord counted that as righteousness. Jeremiah gives two references. We dealt with these several months ago in dealing with righteousness. But two passages in the book of Jeremiah, Old Testament scriptures. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. That's his name. This king who reigns in righteousness and justice. His name is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. If Israel didn't get that, if they didn't understand that message from Jeremiah later in the, in the book, 10 chapters later in Jeremiah 33, we read this, very similar language. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. The same name given to the Lord. The great king raised up the righteous king. His name is the name of Israel and Judah. It's it's an imputed name. The name of the king is put to the name of the people. Oh, if there's ever been a, a passage that clearly shows the righteous have a righteousness that is not their own. It's put to their account. It's passages such as these. And then perhaps the greatest of all the texts, the most clear passage in all of the text, in all the word of God, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith. Here we are again. A faith righteousness. For if they which are of the law be heirs, if, if the ones who are keeping the law in order to be righteous before God are the heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. What God did in promising Israel and specifically Abraham, the, the, the blessings and the promises he made to him, it's made of none effect if Israel then had to keep the law in order to be righteous. Because the law worketh wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that which also is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Later in that chapter we read, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Oh, you, you, you see the great blessings and the, the benefits that came upon Abraham. And they came upon Abraham because Abraham believed God and God imputed it to him for righteousness. And you may say, well, that's great for Abraham. But the apostle understands the the reasoning. He understands the logic. And he says it wasn't just written for his sake alone. It was written for us. The very same promises, the very same blessings that were poured out upon Abraham are poured out upon us 
if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's a faith righteousness. It's a faith righteousness. We ask ourselves the question then, secondly, why do they die well? Why do the righteous die well? If the righteous are the ones that have this standing before the Lord by virtue of their faith in Christ, not by virtue of their own obedience to the law. Right? I was raised in a home that called itself a Christian home. It wasn't a Christian home. It was a, it was a legal home. It was a home where I was told, in essence, that the work of Christ was of none effect. Because God was happy with me because of my prayers. God was happy with me because of my deeds. God was happy with me because of all these other things that I was told. The the keeping of the law. There was nothing of the gospel in that home. It was not a Christian home. But then the Lord showed us in his word passages such as this. It's so obviously clear that the blessing of the Lord flows to those who have a righteousness which is by faith. That's our only hope, our only confidence tonight in order to stand before the Lord as righteous. But why do these righteous die well? Because the scripture tells us that only the righteous can have eternal life. That's why there's an emphasis upon dying the death of the righteous. You want to die the death of the righteous. You want to face death as a righteous man or a righteous woman tonight, because the scripture is clear, only those who are perfectly righteous in the sight of God have eternal life. Life is connected to perfect obedience to the law. Read through it. Go through the scriptures with your eyes open and and focus upon, especially in Paul's epistles, especially in Romans, how often life And righteousness or life and obedience are joined at the hip. No one has confidence or can have confidence of eternal life unless they know for sure that God views them as righteous. Romans chapter 6 verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become the servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord this great chapter Romans chapter 5 the chapter we've been considering about what Adam did and what Christ has done listen to the emphasis upon life for if by one man's offense death reigned by one Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. What's the confidence that the Lord gives us that we will reign in life, that we will enjoy eternal life? It's because we have received the gift of righteousness and we shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. The next verse Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon men, all men, unto justification of life. The righteousness of one has merited life. Later in that chapter, 
That as sin hath reigned unto death, verse 21 of Romans 5, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want to go? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want eternal life? Is that your desire? Especially as you face death? We all have a date with a date with death. Like I said, there's one thing that's guaranteed to us. I get tired of hearing people talk about how foolish it is if you don't save for retirement. Right? You're a fool if you don't save for retirement. And yet I know people that never had the opportunity to use their retirement money or very little opportunity because of death. The very same people that say that you're a fool if you don't save for retirement should be encouraging people to consider their end. The end of their days. Not one of us is guaranteed a day of retirement. But every one of us is guaranteed a day of death. When you come to face death, the word that you should be considering and the testimony that you should have is the testimony that Balaam says of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let me die the death of the righteous. Oh, the connection between righteousness and eternal life. It took me a long time uh, to see that connection. If people were to ask me, up until just several years ago, what was my hope for eternal life? It's that Christ died on the cross. It was that Christ died on the cross. What Christ did on the cross was removed your guilt. Your guilt had to be removed in the sight of God as well. The shedding of Christ's blood removed your guilt. But the hope and the confidence that you have that you're going to enter heaven and eternal life is based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. His active obedience to the law. That's why that imputed righteousness that is given to me is is joined to life. So that Christ's death and Christ's life is the basis of my acceptance before God and the hope that I have of eternal life. You cannot understand the gospel properly unless you understand imputed righteousness. And I would dare say, if you went across this land and took 10 or 12 evangelicals, maybe even evangelical ministers, and sat them down and asked them if they have ever even heard of the doctrine of imputed righteousness, you would prob- if they were honest, you would probably get most of them to say no. They have not heard of the doctrine of imputed righteousness. The doctrine which is the heart of the gospel. Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation because in that message, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that God provides It's a faith righteousness and it's given to us the moment we believe. Once God views us joined to Christ, he views us as having perfectly kept his law. And on that basis, you and I can have the confidence that we're fit to inherit eternal life. That's the basis. That's why I want to die the death of the righteous. Because dying the death of the righteous is the the gateway into eternal life. Balaam and all of his misunderstanding, simply only giving the word that God told him to speak, gave 
perhaps one of the greatest explanations of the gospel in the Old Testament. It's an amazing passage. So death is to be faced by all men. Only the righteous can die well. And then lastly, the ungodly can see it. The ungodly can see it. Oftentimes they're not honest. But the ungodly see that there is a difference among the godly and the ungodly when they face death. I was, a, I was an older boy when I was growing up in the Catholic Church. We were, our family was really close to the priest. His name was Father Rick. He was a younger guy in his early 30s. And he practically treated our family as his family. And so when I got old enough to, uh, to perform as an altar boy, he made sure that I got the only two paid positions <laughs> as an altar boy. You didn't get paid for being an altar boy for a normal, ordinary mass. But because you had to give of your time to, to be an altar boy, boy during a funeral or a wedding, those that were paying for the funeral or the wedding had to pay the altar boys. And so my friend who lived across the street, we were very close with the priest, so he made sure that we got all the funerals and all the weddings. And obviously I did it for the money, right? I didn't, I didn't see any benefit other than this is a job for me. But I will say this, looking back, looking back upon those days, that I learned very quickly that those who do not have a faith righteousness have absolutely no confidence when they face death. Very few 9, 10, 11-year-old kids are exposed to something like that. Almost every week, I was involved in some fashion with a funeral. And almost every week, I saw in my, in my very presence, those who said that they were Christians, those who said that they belonged to the Lord, that had absolutely no confidence that the departed family member is right with the Lord and is in, is in heaven. As a matter of fact, if you believe what the church teaches, there's not one person who dies as a Roman Catholic that enters heaven. They teach that you actually have to continue to be purged from your sins. What a blasphemy against the work of Christ. I'm a Christian I follow the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross and what he did in his life. To say that a believer in Christ, when he passes, has to continue to pay for his sins in purgatory, almost as if the, the work of Christ was, was so inefficient that it didn't purge away all the sins of all of his people for all eternity. What a blasphemy against the work of Christ. I saw... The emptiness, the hopelessness of those who took the name of Christ but did not have his righteousness put to their account. Then I started to go to, to Christian funerals. In, in, in some of these Christian funerals, it was almost a rejoicing. The atmosphere at a Christian funeral was entirely different. Unlike anything that I had ever seen in my life. And just 
the comparison and the contrast between the two. The ungodly see it. The ungodly see it. Even Balaam. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like his. Those who are refusing to come to Christ for righteousness continue to live for any number of reasons. Maybe they're like the Jews of old. They have a zeal of God, but not according to righteousness or according to knowledge. They'll find themselves lost on that great and terrible day of the Lord. Even the Lord says that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. What are they saying? In thy name have we not gone about to establish our own righteousness? The Lord says, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, establishing your own righteousness, Christ views it as iniquity. Maybe they have hatred against God. Maybe they're not even trying to serve the Lord, albeit in ignorance. Maybe they have hatred against the God of all creation for some reason. They refuse to come to Christ. They simply will not let this man rule over them. Oh, Psalm 2 tells us, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Literally against Jehovah and against his Adonai, his Christ. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them. In his sore displeasure. Oh, at the end of the psalm we're told, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed. Blessed are all they. That put their trust in him. I'm afraid. It's most often unfortunately, because of sin and riches in this life that men refuse to come to Christ. In the 73rd Psalm, the psalmist struggled. He struggled when he saw the wicked prosper in the world. It wasn't until he went into the sanctuary of God that he understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. He's saying that the prosperity that he envied of the wicked is the Lord setting them in slippery places. The very thing that he thought was their good and their benefit. It wasn't until he went into the sanctuary that he understood their end. And surely thou hast cast them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so Lord, when thou awakest, Thou shalt despise their image. All the prosperity, the lie of the devil. Pursue the American dream. Right? That's where you'll find contentment and happiness. We have had a generation, several generations in my country, pursue the lie of the American dream. And now look at our nation. Look at our nation. 
We don't even know if someone that is born a female is a female. That's how bad it's gotten. We don't even have enough sense to understand that a marriage is between a man and a woman. Other nations, other nations that we despise, the presidents of those nations are giving speeches saying we don't want that culture here. We believe in the family, the family where we have one mommy and one daddy. Even the ungodly that have very little history. I've heard the speeches. They're in amazement. They're shocked that the Western civilization has come to this. As a dream when one awaketh, so Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Balaam was a false prophet. He tried to destroy the nation of Israel and sold them out later for money. Balaam had nothing to do with the gospel. He rejected it. He despised it. He's actually mentioned in the epistle of Jude in verse 11. Talking about false prophets in his day, Jude says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. And perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Yet the word came from, his, from the lips of this condemned man. Let me die the death of the righteous. And let my last end be like his. Balaam, the one who spoke those words, is in hell tonight. Suffering for his sin. Balaam was a rejecter of God's righteousness. Don't make the same mistake. Trust in the God who provides a perfect saving righteousness for his people in the person of his son. I trust the Lord will take this word and write it upon our hearts tonight for his name's sake. We're going to close the service by singing hymn number 384. Hymn 384, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Hymn number 384. And 84. And when we get the music, we'll stand together to sing.